levels since May, ahead of El Salvador's official adoption of Bitcoin as legal currency. That starts today. The move makes it the first country in the world to officially put Bitcoin on its balance sheet and hold it in reserves. Here to break down uh, this test case, essentially, with us is CNBC's Mackenzie Sigalos. Mackenzie, great to have you on. I know you've been doing a lot of reporting uh, around this. But the fact that we did see Bitcoin jump ahead of this and now it's under a little bit of pressure today, I mean, this has in many ways been kind of the bull case uh, longer term around Bitcoin, the fact that you could actually use it to, to transact for everyday items, right? Right. And I think that that's one of the major things that people are looking for today on the ground in El Salvador. You know, citizens can now from today technically use Bitcoin to buy virtually anything. So we're talking a cup of coffee, a haircut. They can also pay their taxes in Bitcoin. And that's why you did see this price run up in the last few weeks. Like Bitcoin's price was touching highs that it hadn't seen since May. And then yesterday, the government announced that it was adding almost $21 million worth of Bitcoin to its balance sheet. And that's where you saw this, like, this huge bump up in the price. And yes, it has come off of those highs, but I think people are watching to see how rollout goes. And, and, and we're starting to see that. You know, from midnight, I was on the phone with people who were on the ground in San Salvador, and they were actively downloading the wallet that the government has offered to all citizens. So it's been really interesting to see it all happen in real time. <laughs> I, I, I realize we're essentially only hours into this rollout, but do we know from a, tech, from a technical standpoint how those downloads are, are going right now? Uh, and I ask that given the fact that, what, only about a third of Salvadorans actually use the Internet? Right. And, and, you know, that stat has been called into question just because it's referring okay. more to these wired lines or fiber optics. But almost everybody has a cell phone in hand, and that's really the level of connectivity that you need to be a part of this Bitcoin economy. And in terms of how successful the rollout has been so far, so, I mean, was this a flip that switched at midnight? No, it wasn't. But, you know, people were actively communicating with one another. Uh, the president was helping to troubleshoot IT issues. And so at around 2 a.m., that's when we first saw the wallet go live. And it's something called the Chivo wallet, which is Salvadoran slang for cool. And so the government is, is really pushing people to become a part of this economy. And the way that they're doing that is by saying that everyone who signs up for this wallet gets $30. And, I mean, that's no small sum. In a country where, you know, the average minimum wage is $365. And so from 2 a.m., it hasn't been a totally smooth rollout, but we have seen successful downloads. We have seen people receiving that $30 into their wallet. Mackenzie, from people who are, you know, intently watching this from the kind of Bitcoin camp, let's say, the people who really believe in it, what would represent success, either in terms of volume of transactions or, you know, just the adoption or displacement of other types of payments? What are we, what are, what are our benchmark indicators? I mean, you said a few of them there. I mean, I think mainstream adoption, I, I think that one side of this, you know, going beyond using Bitcoin as, as a currency, as a form of, you know, exchanging, exchanging value, people see it as a way to, to help uh, Salvadorans save money. And, you know, it's a largely unbanked population. And so this gives them a way to build this culture around saving money. And, and I think that that's one thing that a lot of 
crypto insiders have brought, well, Bitcoin insiders, because this is really a Bitcoin project. And what Bitcoin insiders have spoken to me about is that they're excited about moving people from this government wallet, which is custodial, to their own wallet, where they hold the private key and they have 100% ownership over their wealth. And that's, you know, that's something that a lot of these people haven't experienced before. And I think that that's what they're most excited about. Mackenzie, El Salvador has been looked at as a test case for a while. Are people talking about which country might be next? You know, Panama was watching, but I think I think that a lot of countries are, are keeping an eye on how things play out in El Salvador. And, you know, not everybody is happy about it. The IMF and the World Bank have, have expressed concerns about what this rollout means. So I, I think that there are a lot of people on, on either side. You know, there are a lot of big supporters, but, you know, you have a large portion of the population that also is, is confused about what this Bitcoin rollout means. They're inherently skeptical. So there are quite a few barriers to entry. So it'll be very telling how this plays out in the next few weeks, in the next few months, as we, as we get a better sense of what may mainstream adoption really looks like. Happy Bitcoin Tuesday, freaks. It's your boy, Matt Adele, here for another Citadel Dispatch, the interactive live show about Bitcoin distributed systems, privacy, and open source software. You may have noticed that we took a break last week from Dispatch. Um, it is the end of the summer, and I'm having a little bit of trouble uh, lining up solid guests and topics, so I will take breaks from here, from here on um, if I don't think we have a solid topic lined up trying to keep uh, the conversation on dispatch high signal, not trying to waste your time. Um, so that's why we had a break last week. Um, but I'm very excited for this conversation. This is Citadel Dispatch 37. Um, our focus is going to be on building software from source um, and reproducing those build processes and why that is important. Um, before we get started, I want to do a brief shout out to all the ride or die in the live chat, whether that's through Twitch, YouTube, or Twitter. Um, you guys make this show very special, um, very unique. Uh, so thank you all for joining us once again. Um, and another big shout out to the freaks who support the show and keep it ad-free and sponsor-free. Um, I think that's the way to align incentives as, as well as possible going forward. And it's something that we're trying to champion here at Dispatch. I never want to have ads or sponsors. Um, so that's only possible because the freaks uh, continue to support the show. Uh, the easiest way to do that is through podcasting 2.0 apps. If you go to newpodcastapps.com and pick an app from that list, um, you'll be able to just search Citadel Dispatch to pull up the Citadel Dispatch feed, load it up with sats, and you can stream sats directly to my wallet um, to support the show as you're listening. It's a really cool experience. After I upload it to the RSS feeds, I see the sats roll in and it's really fucking cool. Um, you can also support the show at saledispatch.com. There's links to uh, donate via Lightning or via Paynim. My Paynim is very easy to remember. It is Odell. Um, and you can support the show with merch. Um, I have uh, 
if you go to silldispatch.com slash stack, uh, you can get hats. Um, we have flasks courtesy of um, Quinn Solo, and we have pins and magnets courtesy of BTC Pins. Uh, so that's silldispatch.com slash stack. Uh, currently, my hats are on back order. I use Richardson hats only, which are made in the USA. They're super high quality. I am a stubborn person, and I refuse to switch brands. Um, so I appreciate your patience as you wait for me to get them back in stock. They should be in stock shortly. Um, so with all that said, I'm really excited to have this conversation. Uh, we have Craig Raw joining us for, I believe, the third time, um, maintainer of Sparrow Wallet. How's it going, Craig? What's up, Matt? Great to be back. Joining us again. Yeah, it's always good. Um, and we have Andrew Chow, uh, Bitcoin Core Dev. Uh, he's never been on Dispatch, but we did speak, I think, two years ago on um, Tales from the Crypt. How's it going, Andrew? Hey, I'm doing well. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a ple- the pleasure is all mine. Thank you for joining us, Andrew. Um, so the main topic of the conversation today is building our software from source. Uh, recently, uh, NVK, who has been on the show many times, um, launched a new project, BitcoinBinary.org, um, to basically try and normalize the process of verifying um, that source code matches the binaries that people are installing, the actual install files that people install. Um, and it kind of brought this up, at least into the attention of people on Bitcoin Twitter. Um, and Andrew jumped on the occasion and started trying to uh, basically reproduce the builds um, of a bunch of popular projects and ran into some issues. Um, and that's how this conversation came about. But before we jump all the way into there, I think a good place to start is, Andrew, why should people care about building um, their software from source? And why is it important? So when when you download software from the internet, um, you can't be sure that what you're downloading uh, doesn't contain any malware, right? Uh, and so the way to be sure that the software that you're downloading is you know exactly what you intend to be using you build it from source. The problem is not everyone knows how to build it from source. Um, we don't expect everyone to build all their software from source because uh, it's kind of a pain and and you know that's it's a very technical thing. So uh, the the question then becomes how can we how can normal users trust that the software they download from the internet is actually built from the source code that the developers publish? And we do that through reproducible builds. So the the way it works is that multiple people can build the same source code and they arrive at the exact same binary that the developer publishes on, you know, on their website or whatever. And um, so then people can see, okay, there are, you know, 20 people who have built the same thing. Uh, and, and, you know, at least hopefully some of them have reviewed the source code to make sure there's no malware in there. And so we can reasonably trust that the developer is uh, not slipping in some like hidden uh, hidden backdoors or hidden malware into the software that they actually publish. So in your, in your opinion, 
the ideal way for people to run software is they should be building everything from source, but that's not a, it's not a reachable goal. The expectation is not everyone will do that. Correct. Yeah. And there is, um, there's also kind of a bootstrap problem. So to build everything from source, you have to have a compiler to have a compiler that is open source, you need to build the compiler. So what do you use to build the compiler? Um, this goes down many layers and is a very complicated topic. So, so basically the idea is here is we're trying to reduce, um, we're trying to reduce trust in an individual single point of failure. Right. Um, so, right? Yeah. So instead of just, you know, trusting that the developer blindly trusting the developer to have done the right thing. Uh, it's now possible to verify that they've done the right thing. And then users can trust a wider group that has you know less incentive to be malicious. So I, I guess like the place to really start here in this conversation is why open source is important in the first place, right? Yeah. Um, open source is important because you can look at the code and you know, make sure it's not doing something weird. Right. So you have the code. Everyone can look at the code. Um, the ideal trust situation is that you're analyzing every piece of code yourself. Um, you know what the hell is going on with the code and you're making sure nothing crazy is happening and then you're building it yourself. So nothing gets interjected in the, in the middle process. Um, and then I guess the next, the, the next achievable goal after there is you have a binary that is assigned binary. So you can verify that it hasn't changed from when the person distributed it. Um, and, but the question then becomes, does that install file all differ at all from the code that was published previously? And that's where reproducible builds come in, right? Yep. Um, so the idea there is even if you can't build it yourself, and you can't you can't analyze the code yourself. You can safely know that you know ten people I trust all were able to 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 build the same exact binary, and they all ideally, I guess, sign it. So then you know that it's you're not just trusting the developer who shipped the code and signed it. You're you're distributing that trust among a group of individuals that were able to reproduce the build, right? Mm -hmm. um and this is not just about a malicious developer uh specter had a for example specter desktop um a project that a fantastic project had a issue or they had a scare it turned out to not actually ha have happened but they had a scare where they released a they released a binary that they thought and that they signed as well, but that they thought the build process got contaminated by some kind of virus on the build computer. And in, in that situation, because the build wasn't reproducible, everyone was just blindly following whatever the signed binary was that was released. So it wasn't even necessarily the developer who was being malicious. It was just the computer that he used to build the software, uh, could have had a virus on it. Yeah, that's that's also one of the things that reproducible builds help with. You know, if if um, 
uh, a very powerful malicious actor you know compromises the developer's computer uh they can't with reproducible builds if they insert malicious code into the binary uh it would still be caught by everyone else who is building they would, right. they would see that the binaries don't match so let's start with so how does bitcoin core handle this issue uh so bitcoin core we are we have we currently have two systems one is called gideon uh this is what we're we've been using um for the past 10 years something like that very long time uh and we're transitioning to a new system called geeks uh but both of them work on approximately the same principle and that is that we have a build environment that is separate from the the machine that's it that is it's running on so it's kind of a, a container uh, or a virtual machine and in that environment we we make sure that the dependencies are all the same so everyone will have the same dependencies and from there we just do a, a compile with some extra flags in there uh, and the the end result is that um about five to ten people do the builds uh before release and we compare everyone's the hashes of all the binaries that are produced and make sure that they all match so for every release uh there there are several people who have built the exact same binaries um before the release is actually published it's the the there is a a very big difference between gideon and geeks um so Gideon uses actually uses virtual machines. Geeks ha, uh, is a is actually a software project from uh, the GNU Foundation, or I think that's what it is. Uh, and um, its whole thing is to reproducibly build all open source software. Right. So Bitcoin Core is arguably, I mean, probably not even arguably is is the most important piece of software that we have in the bitcoin space um and it's software only there's no hardware involved it's not a mobile piece of software um so it is the the priority is obviously security as much as possible um we hit we hit roadblocks in terms of these concerns when you start introducing hardware wallets and you start introducing um, mobile wallets um, with mobile wallets, especially if you get it through like the app stores uh, there, there's obviously you're adding another middleman involved in that process. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think where I want to go with this. So, so well, there, there are roadblocks, but I don't think, I think they can all be solved in a similar way that core does it. Um, the main, the main problem that I've seen with, with these other software is this thing called code signing. So a code signing is, is the, um, the developer has a private key and they sign the binary that they publish and they uh, attach that signature to it. Uh, and so when you run the software on your computer, your operating system verifies the signature first. Uh, to to make sure that you know the developer actually published that software, I guess. Um, and so for 
every major operating system except Linux, because Linux isn't a unified operating system, there's code signing. Uh, that that applies to Windows, Mac, iOS, Android. Like they all have, they all basically require code signed binaries. Um, and then hardware wallets also do code signing. So firmware is code signed and the bootloader verifies that the firmware has a valid signature on it. Uh, this is a problem for a minor problem for reproducible builds because only the, the private key is supposed to be private. Only one person is supposed to hold that. So how do you, how do you make sure that everyone who is reproducing the build can arrive at the same published binary that has a signature on it? Um, the way that Bitcoin Core does it is that we have a two-step process. So we do, uh, we build everything, everyone builds uh, non-code signed binaries. Um, after there are several matching ones, the people who have the code signing keys uh, sign the binaries and publish just the signature. And then everyone again does a build where they're just attaching the signature. Uh, they download the signature and attach it to the binary that they built. Um, and then that's what gets published. What a lot of... So you're able to verify everything but the signature. Yeah. So you can't, you know, reproducibly make the signature, but you can verify that it is a signature. It goes in the place where signatures go. And, you know, if you treat it as a signature, it is a valid signature. Um, and so then it just becomes, you know, a, a small binary blob that gets tacked on at the end of, of the binary. Uh, so, so that's what Bitcoin Core does for dealing with the code signature problem. Um, it seems like most other software aren't doing that. They uh, instead, what they're doing is that you you download the published binary, you remove the signature, and then compare the the strip signature strip binary to what was built. Um, there, it's approximately the same uh, in terms of. It, it moves like the signature step from the uh, building side to the verifying side. But but in the end, you can verify that builds are reproducible. So th the reason we have these signatures in the first place, right, is is because it's, it's strictly a net benefit for the average user, right? The average user is, is basically at least guaranteeing at the very least that the software is released from the developer they expect it to, or if their hardware wallet uh, is, is knowing that it's not released by someone who doesn't own that private key at least. Yes and no. So when it comes to hardware wallets, um, keys are burned on at fact at the factory. Um, right. So, so in that case, yes, they, it is a, a benefit because you're, there's only like one or two keys that can sign and, and they are hard coded in in read only memory on the device itself, um, and, and so in that aspect, yeah, that that's a benefit. When it comes to OSs like you know Windows, Mac, uh, iOS, and Android, the key isn't present on um, on the the computer you're installing it on because that would be ridiculous to have every developer's keys somehow installed at the factory. That doesn't really work. So what they do is uh, this certificate authority structure. This is how like HTTPS certificates certificates work, uh, where 
there is some root trust that sign root trusted authority that signs a certificate. Um, and the problem there is that it's really easy to get a certificate. Uh, and so malware have had uh, like valid code signatures. Um, and, and so it doesn't quite help they, out. There. Like a malicious actor can compromise, compromise that process. That's like an inherently centralized process of checking. Well, there's that, and also, like, ha, uh, the you the user could download a binary that is code signed, but with someone else's key, and it it's not going to be immediately obvious that they downloaded something malicious, because that someone else could have a name, like so, like for example, um, Bitcoin Core is signed with a key that says. Uh, Bitcoin Core code signing LLC, um, but uh, um, a malware author could probably obtain a key to the with the name you know Bitcoin Core signing LLC, right? right. It's almost the same thing, but uh, the the certificate authorities will issue both keys, so it's not quite helpful in that case because your average user probably is not going to catch that. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes sense. Um, okay. So I, we have Craig here, you know, Craig is the maintainer of the Sparrow wallet project. Uh, fantastic, uh, user focused wallet. Um, and I mean, he's trying, I don't want to speak for him too much, but he, he wants all of his builds to be reproducible. Um, Craig, you want to jump in here? Do you, I know you have specific questions. I feel like sure. I, I feel like this is a this topic is pretty obviously uh, not you know in my comfort zone. So I, I would love to to hear a conversation between the two of you. Sure. So I think the first thing worth worth saying is Andrew's being quite modest uh, uh, in when he talks about uh, the, the you know what what Coin Core have achieved in terms of the, the reproducibility of 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 the builds, um, you know, you certainly need be involved in that. And uh, uh, the first thing I want to say is that it's, it's really difficult uh, um, to get this process right. Right. Typically, any application of reasonable size has very complex build process. It's it's it just um, it sort of has to be that way. That way. Our modern apps um, they have a lot have a lot of parts to go into them. Them. And when you're trying to package them up, them up into some kind of a binary, you really do um, go through a lot, a lot of different steps in terms of doing so. So, so you know, all, all of those different steps, if, if there's one element in them that introduces some degree of randomness, um, let's say there's a, a list of things in that have been defined and the, the order of those things have not been defined. Then it may may work fine on a whole number of different systems. As soon as you get to one, one system that ha that happens to reorder the list list for some random, you know, completely unrelated reason, then your reproducibility goal is then fails. Um, um, so you know, it, it it tends to be this binary goal, which which is a very difficult one. Um, because you can put put many many hours hours in. If you don't get all the way to the end, you know it's a zero or, or a one, um, and that makes it it's you know a challenge. Um, so you know I, I think that um, 
from the point of view of, of kind of being in a much smaller team, you know, I really, really admire what Bitcoin Core have, have done. And Andrew describes the sort of 10 or so people that jump on uh, for every release candidate or every release of Bitcoin Core and build, build it themselves. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's an amazing build process that you go through. I actually did my, my first build, build this afternoon. Uh, and you know, there's been a huge amount of effort that has gone into, into making sure that that, that works um, all different, different systems and it works in the reliable way that it's. So, um, you know, I, I kind of, I just thought it would be useful to take a step, a step back and um, sort of appreciate what Bitcoin Coin Core have gone through in order to get to this point. point. And Adru mentioned that on the second iteration of, of this 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 kind of process having moved from the Gitian build system to the Geeks one, um, and and the major between those two is that is that Gitian one tended to, de to depend uh, much more on on sort of uh, bodies that were trusted with with the system that we wouldn't think too much about, but but ultimately you do you do have to that this binary is do doing what it's meant to do. So Geeks is is far of a bootstrap. Um, kind of way of doing things uh, uh, than Gitian was. And that's, I think, a big di difference and kind of movement forward. So that's, I think, a, a, a good kind of, of point to, to start, start with. Um, from the point of view of, 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 you know, other, you know, Bitcoin projects trying to implement implements who might not have the army of volunteers that Bitcoin has, I think that there, there there needs to be a degree of of can we you know work towards a series of intermediate builds. So we sort of we might not be able to build and reproduce the final final bind, but how can we get to an intermediate point um, along the way that we can check? Because sure, that's not the final binary that people run, and that's not as good as, good as being able to reproduce the final binary. But it certainly makes act more difficult. Um, and that's and that's really what we're trying to aim for for here, right? Trying to look at different threat models and trying to, to reduce reduce them. So I, I guess I guess I kind of wanted to ask Andrew's view view on, on you know given um, the need for I think all Bitcoin projects to try to try move towards this goal and the reality that it is tends tends to be a fairly binary goal in some sense. What is um, what what are, what are your thoughts, Andrew, on in terms of of able to try and set some immediate 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 along that path well so i think that's reasonable and you know having um reproducible unsigned non-code signed binaries is you know definitely a a good first step uh, and so is just having reproducibility within something like a docker container right so you know you have if you have like a docker container set up for doing builds and it's reproducible like that's a that's a good step because um both of these are are builds that people uh other people can can still reproduce even if they don't exactly match what is being published um but like once you get there you know that's not the end you have to keep going to to get past uh some of the more obscure uh, reproducibility re reproducibility issues and you know the harder problems like code signing for sure, for sure. Uh, um, so, uh, just in terms of 
um, my own kind of in this. Um, I've uh, been working on this for for at least at least a year now, um, and have finally, I I hope, um, reached the po the point where the Sparrow binary will be able to be produced as of the next next release. Um, so that doesn't include the kerning, as you mentioned, and it doesn't include the actual install install installer files. So not quite like all the way yet, but um, certainly has been quite a journey to get just to the point point where um, we are now. Um, I was was wondering, you know, also um, uh, what your thoughts were on 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 different kind of platforms and how, how easier or, or difficult it was, you know, in terms of the language that you use um, and, you know, are the kind of experiences there that you that you had that might um, help as you are think, think, thinking about to kind of go go about this, you know, what kind of languages, tool sets do you think um, um, should be looked at or maybe the, some that maybe aren't very um, ideal for this goal, goal. Well, so I think every every language is able to to have a reproducible build. Um, even so, I I have uh, HWI is a Python project, and now Python, is, you know, it's very high level, so it's it's a bit hard to get it to be reproducible. But um, in the end, it is possible and. A lot of this is because reproducible builds is not just something that uh, Bitcoiners care about, right? It's something that a, a significant chunk of the the uh, free and open source software ecosystem cares about. So there are, you know, Geeks is a project that is very focused on reproducible builds. Um, so is NixOS. Uh, they they also do reproducible builds. But then um, there's Debian, like. Debian actually is really trying to get reproducible builds of all of their packages. Uh, Debian is massive. Uh, it's a very popular operating system and it has tons of packages uh, and they have achieved reproducibility on a ton of them. So um, it's actually really useful that other, other people in open source software care about this because you can just go to their code, go to their code base, look at their build process and borrow things. Um, in, in Bitcoin core, we did this a lot. There was a lot of like, you know, there's some project that does this one thing. Uh, Debian has this special patch to make it reproducible. Well, we're just going to go to the Debian repo and take that patch and, and add it to our own build system. And now we've made some extra thing reproducible. Um, so, so if you're trying to get a project to build reproducibly, it's really helpful to, you know, go to uh, projects like Debian, find something related, or maybe just like a dependency that you need, and see how they're making it reproducible. Yeah, cool. I think that that, that makes a lot of, a lot of sense. Um, uh, Andrew, do you think you so you think we should hit a point um, where all software that we use is reproducible, whether that's mobile or desktop? That would be ideal. Um, it would be nice to get there. I don't think it will happen because not everyone um, 
not all the software developers are going to be aware or care enough, I guess, to make their builds reproducible. But uh, even if, you know, even if the developers don't care, maybe the tools that they use, like the compilers and stuff, uh, will care enough and, and work towards making everything reproducible. But I, I don't think we'll, I don't think we will actually get there though. So first of all, freaks, we're we're aware of the audio issues on Craig's side. He's trying to silently troubleshoot them. Um, this is a live show. I'm not sure if he'll be able to before the end of the show. So it is what it is. Um, to go back to your comment, Andrew. Um, so I mean, all of this is really big picture. The idea is to try and reduce as much trust in the supply process of our software as possible. Um, and we've seen a lot of work kind of on like the centralized side, um, in terms of, you know, Apple requiring, you know, trusted signatures for all their software and trying to, you know, approve and disapprove what's in their app store. Um, but from a pure, uh, you know, free software movement perspective, uh, that is kind of an issue in itself. Do you see a concern in a lot of Bitcoiners using uh, maybe these centralized app stores to download their their applications to download their software? Um, I think that there isn't that much concern there, uh, especially because like it is possible to reproduce we build those and um and and it's not it's actually not that difficult to get the download from the store with you know on a computer i've uh done that before and it's not that hard um but yeah so i don't i don't think there's a, a huge amount of concern around doing around installing from centralized um app stores but it, it is it would be good to for people to be uh using things like um other other app stores like fdroid which which does uh i don't think they quite do reproducible builds but it's like a repository of only open source apps that kind of thing so um and, and of course if you can build your own the app yourself that that would be that's much better than downloading from a from an app store Right. Um, I, I guess there's, a, there's varying levels of trust and you're trying to just reduce them at different, different levels. I mean, I guess like the big fear would be, um, or I, I don't know if it's ever happened in practice. Uh, Craig's just dropping out and jumping back in to see if, if that'll fix it. Um, is this idea that, you know, maybe like a Google or an Apple uh, replaces a package with the malicious package uh, and, and the user would have no idea because they're just downloading it through the app store, right? I mean, I think that's a concern, but I don't think it really matters because right. you're already running software which Google and Apple can remotely update. So if even like... Right, if you're running even their OS you, already. Yeah, you're running their OS. So if you even if you, you know, install the app from somewhere else, if you download an update that uh, your an OS update that's malicious, I mean, you're screwed. So so it doesn't 
really matter i guess like as long as you're in this ecosystem where they can just push out an automatic update to your device um and that that is an os level thing so it can do literally anything uh there's not much i don't think there's much a reason to have a concern on uh for app store type things right really the first step should be running an open source os to begin with yeah um while we're while we're here on this like kind of tangential topic do you want to talk about why bitcoin core doesn't have automatic updates sure um bitcoin core doesn't want to force anyone to uh use to enforce consensus rules that they aren't comfortable with basically um you know new, new releases of bitcoin core have softworks uh you know 0.21.1 had the taproot software implemented in it and we don't want to like if you have automatic updates uh it's kind of you would have users that upgrade without realizing that they're upgrading to a version that contains a consensus rule change um and so we don't want that we want users to decide for themselves whether they want to um support the new consensus rules uh, right so there's also so the, up, the updates are a security hole right someone yeah, can push an update hole. to you and take your funds or change the consensus rules right uh so that's the other part it's you know a security problem and also kind of logistically like there's no bitcoin core organization who's going to run the servers so who's going to run the servers for automatic updates that kind of thing also right um and who has the permission to push an update we don't want to deal with that and so we don't got it so i mean in general i mean i think bitcoin users should just none, none of your bitcoin software should have automatic updates on it whether that's the actual bitcoin software or whether that's the os that you're running it on um we have craig back uh before i get to craig uh so andrew i mean you had this thread where you were trying to reproduce a bunch of different projects and you kept running into issues uh, you want to go through like some of the issues that you noticed and and maybe you know mitigations that you hope happen. Yeah. So, um, the the most annoying issue was just the lack of documentation. That's a uh, you know open an issue at the repo and tell them to put some docs up. Um, and 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 the reason I I really care about documentation is that it helps with getting new new people on board um like when i started contributing bitcoin core uh my first contributions weren't code they were doing gideon builds um i followed the docs i read all the documentation and i did gideon builds as a first my first foray into into working on bitcoin core and so it's really helpful to have documentation on how to build your software and especially to build it for a release um the the second problem is a is a really a major issue even with bitcoin core uh and it's that building uh when you do a, a reproducible build or when you try to do a reproducible build like six months a year after the release was made there's a pretty good chance that you don't end up with the same binary and that's because of the the build process depending on system system libraries or system software so a lot of a lot of the build processes use docker 
And the way that they use Docker is just doing like, you know, make a Docker container based on Ubuntu and then install this list of Ubuntu packages and then do the build. But if that, if those Ubuntu packages have, you know, they change their version number or uh, an older version got dropped from the package repository, it's no longer available, um, then the reproducible build might be different because uh, the version, uh, some dependency installed to the system has changed. Um, this is a problem for, I think it's a problem for pretty much every software I tested, including Bitcoin Core. Um, Bitcoin Core doesn't use Docker, but Gideon uh, works on basically the same principle. It starts virtual machines and install things from Ubuntu's package repositories. The way to fix this is to the only way to fix this is to ensure that the build environment uses exactly the same versions of every single dependency. Uh, this is difficult to do. Uh, it basically means you can't use package repositories. Um, and, and so you have to like download everything or you know download the binaries for a specific version or build them from source. Um, and, and so what we're doing in core to deal with that problem is using geeks. Uh, Geeks is, uh, both Geeks and Nix do this, uh, where the package, the packages are reproducible and they are also um, specified by hash. So we say we want this version that has this hash uh, to build this version of Bitcoin Core. And when we do that, then if you try it again in, you know, a year or two, it'll still use exactly that version instead of, uh, instead of whatever the latest is. Um, so that is how you would solve that problem. Uh, but, you know, that's the, that's the next step after getting a reproducible build. And, you know, the, the Docker and Gideon methods, they work, you know, as an intermediate step. Um, so those are the two, like, major issues. I guess the other major issue is the fact that some of them just didn't build. Um, that seems to be a documentation problem. That you just yeah. couldn't get them to build. Yeah. So sometimes docs get outdated. Uh, and so the command I run isn't the real command because the developer forgot to update the documentation. And so the build just doesn't work. That happened a few times. Uh, when I was doing this, I, I wasn't going to spend a whole lot of time troubleshooting. So I just kind of marked it down as build filled and moved on to the next one. So what do you think about MVK's idea that you have basically members of the community going out and trying to build these pieces of software and report back um, in, in return for like some kind of bounty? Do you think that's an achievable goal? Do you think that's the right way of going about it? Um, yeah, I think it's uh, it's good to encourage people to be doing reproducible builds. I think it's really important that multiple people are doing these uh, and like, you know, people outside of the developer groups of the specific software. Um, uh, and and I, I like like, you know, bringing up in public and, and to encourage people to try it themselves. That's, that's something that we should be trying to do and trying to get more people to do reproducible builds of the software that they use. Uh, it's uh, one thing is also to to always say like you know 
do the build of a software that you use because that's something that people care more about than just build all the software, you know? So if you get uh, users to do it, that that's good. So, I mean, I think like a lot of the issues here stem from just the fact that there's there's just not much eyeballs on these on these projects, right? There's not many eyeballs and there's just not much demand. Yeah. Um, a, a lot of issues come from um, just kind of like things that are institutional knowledge that don't get written down for newcomers. Uh, and, you know, that that's kind of what release processes end up becoming. Uh, and yeah, a lot of the problems are just from people who, you know, it, it works on their machine and someone hasn't come along with a different machine to test it out. Right. So that, that's what a lot of these issues I think are coming from. What's up, Craig? You still there with us? Yeah. How, how do I sound? Oh, Much you better. sound way better. Yeah. Oh, great. Good, good, good. Um, yeah. So um, uh, really just uh, interesting to hear, um, you know, the, the different kind of uh, thoughts, thoughts on, on, on this. The one, you know, thing that I can add is that, um, uh, you know, I'm sort of writing in a Java um, kind of level, which um, gives me a, a virtual machine, um, which actually helps to abstract. It's kind of like my own little um, um, version of Docker, if you will, um, which which does actually make life a little bit easier. However, that is only true for the Java code that I write. Obviously, all of the non-Java dependencies, you then have to have the same issues as before. So um, uh, that's been my sort of experience here in terms of being able to do this 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 work, Java has been a, a great help. But I do recognize that there are certain parts of Sparrow that are not Java, and then of course those um, you need to consider how you're going to build 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 those. But it, it is, as I said, you know, sort of a journey. Um, I, I think that you need to look at all the different parts and kind of just find a way to start at some place. Because even if you're just building just your own code, let alone all the other pieces that you pull in, you're still somewhat further down the path and um, you can build on that. So even though it seems like an insurmountable task, I think, to many devs at the start to try and get this right, I would just say begin at just the code that you write, bring in a, a, at a, a sort of intermediate build step and then see if you can't work it from there. So, I mean, specifically with Sparrow, uh, I saw you guys had a back and forth, you and Andrew. Um, and I guess that particular issue was the version of OpenJava that Andrew was using, right? Yeah. So, I have um, too many versions of JDK installed. That's basically the problem. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I, I was eventually able to build Sparrow uh, and... And, you know, this is one of the, this is a related, this is one of the issues I talked about. It's you know it 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 reproduces on my machine, but not on someone else's, right? I I built it about three times, I think, three or four times, and each time I got the same result, but they didn't match what Craig had published, and I think that's because um, the way that Java packages work is like you package in the Java runtime too, or sometimes you do. Uh, and when you do that, it pulls the Java from your system. And if the Java version installed is not the exact same version as 
the developer has installed, then you get two different binaries. Uh, and that seems to be what, what I saw when I um, examined it a bit closer. But, but you know, having, having it reproducible across multiple attempts on the same system is also a really good first step for reproducibility. Yeah, and um, th that's, that, that's actually um, one of the reasons that uh, Spur Spur did a recent upgrade from Java 14 to Java 616 was in fact to uh, fix a bug in the sort of underlying system. Um, and, and that's also a big part of this entire process is that often it's not the developer's code, but it is more the build system that they depend on. Um, in my case here, there was an issue in the Java 14 build system uh, that I use that uh, prevented me from being able to do, 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 do this. But uh, after Andrew's tweet um, last week, I spent some time on it this weekend. And, and now at least um, I've been able to build um, on several different Windows and Linux systems and have got the same results across all, all of them. So. I'm hoping at this point that we have achieved that, but uh, I think it's going to require some wider sort of testing first before we know. Awesome. Um, so, I mean, I have a plan in place uh, to get uh, core devs, uh, Carl Dong and Nickler on to discuss geeks and Nick's um and how they can be helpful here uh it might not be next tuesday it might not be the tuesday after that but some tuesday and hopefully the near future uh they will be on and we will be discussing um those two projects along with the importance of reproducible builds i think it, it it's a good reoccurring um it's a, it's a topic that needs to be constantly addressed i think um but before we you know wrap up here I know Andrew, a lot of the work you've been doing uh, with Bitcoin Core has been in coin selection. Um, you know, I I think my users understand, my audience understands more so than other audiences that when you have a Bitcoin wallet, it might show, you know, you have 10 million Satoshis um, or 0.1 Bitcoin in your wallet, but really it's made up of a bunch of little UTXOs. You can think of them as like a bunch of bills, a uh, bunch of cash bills in your wallet that are all different sizes. Um, and these wallets, if, if you use them in the simplest way, um, without actually choosing which bills you spend, the wallet is deciding which bills you spend. Um, the, so a lot of Andrew's work has been in, how those UTXOs get chosen. Um, and I know that Craig has been working a lot about it on his side. I mean, he just added, it's in testnet right now, but he just added CoinJoin and um, simulated CoinJoin transactions within uh, Sparrow Wallet. So I, I was wondering, Andrew, if you wanted to go into it a little bit about how um, you look at coin selection. I mean, it's, it's a very difficult problem i don't think there's necessarily an easy solution here yeah coin selection um is kind of so there's a there is a computer science problem known as the um knapsack problem and it's like how do you pick things out of a bag of stuff to to reach a certain value 
and that's basically what coin selection does. Um, it's uh, it is classified as a hard problem, and and like in computer science, hard means it's not polynomial time to find a solution. So so for coin selection, it it ends up being like um, something exponential, I think, something like that. Uh, but anyways, there's a lot of different strategies uh, to to do coin selection, and each of them result in different um, different uh, input sets and and different like wallet states, right? So so if you imagine, you know, the the most the easiest coin selection algorithm I could think of is first in first out, right? I take you know my oldest input uh, and just keep grabbing the oldest ones until I reach the value that I need. Um, that's a, that algorithm, I think, uh, you know, it does reasonably well, but it's not, it's not the best. And the, you could definitely do something smarter and better. Um, and with coin selection, there's also a lot of like future problems to think about. You know, it's not just about, can I find enough, inputs to to reach the target that I want to send. Um, but also, if I spend these UP UTXOs now, how does this affect me in the future? Uh, and I would say a good example of this is if you think about the largest first selection algorithm, where I choose, where the wallet chooses the largest UTXO to spend first, um, how this ends up working is that you break down all the really big UTXOs and they get smaller and smaller and smaller until your wallet is just like a thousand dust UTXOs. And that's not particularly helpful uh, because a thousand dust UTXOs is basically valueless because you can't spend dust. Um, and so when it comes to coin selection, there's all these other problems that you have to think about. Like, you know, if I do this strategy, do I accidentally grind my wallet to dust? Or if I do this strategy, uh, do I end up, you know, do I end up costing myself in the future? And and then there's other things like if the fee rate is low now, do I want to consider doing something that uh, eats more UTXOs now while the fee rates are low? Um, or maybe I want to optimize for the lowest cost to the user. Uh, so yeah, coin selection is a hard, hard thing to to deal with. <laughs> I mean, um, I think and, and I just think in addition to what Andrew said, you know, it's often not clear what goal the user is trying to achieve. You know, are they trying to achieve a goal around being as efficient as they can in terms of fees? Do they want to be as private as they can be? You know, these are also factors that need to be taken into account. Yeah. It's, it's always hard. Like, uh, you know, what, how do you define best? What is optimal? Um, and, and for each user, that could be something completely different. It's a it's a weird situation because it seems like in Bitcoin power user land, we are all just using coin control and we're all just choosing which UTXOs we want to spend for a given transaction. But then there's this massive disconnect where the majority of users are using wallets that are choosing for them and they're using very naive algorithms to choose for them, right? Yeah. Um, this might be a hot take, uh, but I don't think people should be using coin control <laughs> because um, because uh, people who use coin control are probably not thinking about the all of the other knock-on side effects of 
the inputs that they choose. Um, although, granted, I'm sure that many wallet developers aren't thinking about those either. Uh, but also, many do think about these uh, side effects. Um, there are uh, there are ways to you know preserve privacy while using the coin selection algorithm by saying you know do selection but only on these UTXOs because I because I want these UTXOs to be grouped together and not with these other ones um, and so those are things that that are good for wallet developers to implement uh, in addition to you know trying to find a strategy that they think is good for their users. Craig, how do you approach this uh, concern? Yeah, look, I, I think that that is, um, as Brad pointed out in the comments, a spicy take. Um, I was about to say <laughs> the same thing. Um, uh, you know, I think the reality is uh, is that yeah, you you can you can um, you can say, well, is the user likely to do better than the coin selection algorithm, which has been carefully considered? And there is a degree to which there is strength to that. Um, but I, I think that you know if if you just look at the at the the problems around trying to be private when you spend, if you look at the the fact that your change output really indicates a great deal about you know the sort of history of of you know you can as we all know if you get paid in Bitcoin and you just take it say you get one UTXO and you you know you go down to the store and you buy something then the store owner can see how much you earn, you know, and that's obviously not ideal. Um, so, you know, if you are not using any form of coin control, whether you sort of uh, putting UTXOs into groups or whether you're just selecting the, you know, uh, the sort of UTXO itself, then you really are going to reveal far too much, I think. That's, that's, that's sort of, I think the sort of default is, you might reveal much more than you intend tend to. So, um, my my view is, you can't really get away from from it. You're going to have to have some kind of approach uh, that doesn't just say, "Here's a wallet, here's a whole lot of UTXOs," and the, you know the sort of algorithm will choose the best one. Because ultimately, the algorithm doesn't know enough about how to keep you private. Yeah, there's. It's always the algorithm doesn't know enough about how you want to spend your coins. That's that's always a problem. We can't read people's minds yet. Yeah, but so do we? Do you guys think there's a place for? I mean, well, I always tell users, and this is what I do myself, is to label all their UTXOs when they receive, um, so they know you know, what, what source, what coins are from. Um, do you think there's like a place for that? There's a, there's a place for innovation here, or there's a, there's a product market fit in terms of a wallet that can under can, can understand those labels, kind of interpret those labels and maybe be smarter in terms of knowing what's going on on chain. Like, I feel like a lot of these strategies don't really incorporate privacy, but if you're using your own node already, all that chain data is there. You already have the label data. Um, is, is should we be hopeful for smarter algorithms that maybe can incorporate that kind of information, or is that far out of reach? Um, I think that's a bit far out of reach because because that 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 falls into like interpreting human text, 
and that's just not a fun time um the so one of the main ideas that we've had in bitcoin core is that if you want to separate groups of utxo so that they aren't being spent together then you should be using multiple wallet files um right you can still use bitcoin core but you know you have wallet a is you know um income from my employer wallet b is i bought these coins from an exchange you know things like that to, to separate it because in the end when you have these separations like that um the within when you have the separations within one wallet you end up with basically just having multiple wallets except one place to view your full balance and uh if you don't ever intend on having spending this those separated utxos together like then then what's the point of keeping them all in one place that's kind of an i uh, an idea that we have in bitcoin core and it's um it's why uh partially why i've also spent some time on getting multi-wallet to not suck as much I think um, that is certainly an approach that I think makes a lot of sense and is one that you know you can use with just about any Bitcoin wallet as it stands. Um, so long as you can fire up multiple wallets within the application, um, you should be good. The other thing I wanted to point out, I think a good approach to trying to deal with this is is actually if you can use CoinJoin, um, you can really you know it's it's obviously much more difficult to uh to figure out the source even if you're not spending necessarily um you know funds that that have been through multiple rounds at least if if you have uh broken up your utxos into equal sized amounts but much smaller amounts then you're not as likely to give away as much information you you, you know you're, you're not going to sort of reveal how much you earn because hopefully you've broken that, that down into a number of smaller sized amounts. Right. I think, yeah, coin joins are great. Um, and, and people really should be using them more. Unfortunately, they're hard to coordinate. <laughs> what about, um, so, so Craig right now has this, um, He's integrated Whirlpool into Sparrow. So he's inter he's integrated coordinated five person coin join rounds into Sparrow. It's testnet only right now. And then when you spend after the coin join round, um, it does a simulated coin join. It does like a it it has it has two inputs or at the most basic sense it has two inputs and two outputs regardless of the transaction afterwards. Even though it's not necessarily a coin join but then you could also do a two-person coin join so on chain it looks it looks like a it looks like it could be a two-person coin join you're not sure you have no idea um do you think this is a a reasonable approach andrew or is is that a um is it, obviously it increases your fee burden is is that too much of a trade-off for well, the average user or I don't know, simulated coin joins has always struck me as kind of odd. Um because it always there's always struck me as like kind of like a false sense of security. Uh because you're it's not really a coin join, it doesn't add anonymity. 
it adds maybe some doubt like if but it could be a coin join it could be a coin join yeah but if you are um analyzing so for example if uh i forget what the principle is called but we do this in um secure cyber security analysis type things but basically if i know that if i'm trying to figure out uh you know matt's coins and i know that you use sparrow wallet and i know that this is a behavior that sparrow does then it's not entire then it's completely useless right but the key aspect the key aspect is there's also a feature that would allow two sparrow users to do a coin join just two people uncoordinated just between the two of them right so so that yeah okay so that, we'd have to get usage of that up but if you have usage of that up then you really have no idea yes um yeah that that is reasonable the, there was something there was i remember there was some other wallet that did like simulated coin joins uh where where i i remember it just didn't make any sense um but if there are actual coin joints if sparrow is going to do coin joins of this type then that that is something I think is reasonable um, to to do a simulated coin join. I'm curious, Craig. Uh, I mean, we had, you know, some of the audience might remember. I mean, we had a conversation maybe less than two months ago where we were talking about you integrating this kind of thing into Sparrow, and now we have it in Testnet. Um, what were some of like the issues that you ran into in terms of integration? What are the, you know, did your perspectives change at all in terms of on-chain privacy and how you implement this type of thing? Um, yeah, it's certainly, you know, um, building Sparrow has um, from the start been a journey for me and I've learned a lot along the way. So yes, my views have changed for sure. But um, in terms of the, the sort of challenges of actually doing it, right? So obviously this uh, Whirlpool is coming from the Samurai wallet team. Um, and the, uh, the nice thing about that is that Sparrow is written in Java and Samurai wallet is as well. So I was able to take the uh, Java client, which uh, has been very well written actually um, and i was able to bring that into the sparrow code code base and it can all uh, um, sort of run under the same vm so that makes my life much easier however um, if you're trying to bring two wallet code bases together you do have some overlap so there was um, a challenge there to try and resolve resolve that um, android applications run on java 8 and um, Sparrow is running on Java 16, as I mentioned earlier. So, you know, we've got this huge difference in terms of um, the different versions that they run. Um, and then, of course, we, we, we just have all of these, um, you know, for example, um, Samurai uses a, a quite venerable uh, Java package called Bitcoin J, which I'm sure Andrew is aware of. Um, and Sparrow uses um, basically uh, some of the same concepts, but not the same the same thing. However, they both have the same dependencies. So you have those kind of issues where you have to work through um, that. You know, nobody really sees that sort of. Stuff, but that's actually where a great deal of the time goes is just trying to figure out how to make these two things work to, to get together. However, once that um, had been overcome. 
um, it was really uh, quite a pleasure to work with um, that particular client. Um, and it is the exact same client that you get with the Samurai wallet, which gives me a lot of confidence in going going forward, you know, that I'm not um, releasing code here that hasn't already, you know, had many years of, of sort of iteration in it. Um, but yeah, um, you know, certainly it was great to be able to build on the work of others. Um, it's been a, you know, kind of building, Sparrow, Sparrow I haven't really um, uh, implemented a great deal. One of the things I have actually implemented is the branch and bound coin selection algorithm that is in Bitcoin Core. So I did a port of that. But otherwise, um, it's been nice to have that sort of interaction and um, as I say, um, good to be able to use the same code, code base. Um, so yeah, that's that's um, kind of how it went. I mean, I meant more. So I mean, you have you had to implement multiple sub accounts in the wallet, right? So you had premix, postmix. Um, right, right. Then- yeah. So sure, sure. So so if you cast your mind back, um, we, uh, there was actually introduction of database persistence into the wallet some months ago, and that was really just to prepare for this. Obviously, if you have multiple wallets and you have a single wallet file, you don't want to be trying to write to that single wallet file every time one of those wallets has any kind of update. I don't think that's wise. Um, Bitcoin Core also uses a database to save its 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 hotter. So it would it sort of made sense to look at that example and move towards that. So that was one of the the sort of pre-requirements um, going into this. But then um, being able to add multiple wallets into one wallet file was was uh, yes, so certainly something that you need to be able to do this. Um, and I hope that in future I'll be able to also use that for different sub accounts. So you'll be able to move your coin joins into different spending accounts, as we were saying earlier. Yeah, so I mean, I feel like with Sparrow, like the goal has been kind of to give users like a power user type experience, the the ability to do, um, to, to be more hands-on with, with their utxo organization um and spending in like a very friendly gui um which is kind of your way of tackling the challenges that we've discussed earlier right which is is this you know how you're going to put all your trust in a single algorithm in terms of coin selection you're going to use labeling how are you going to do all these things how does it look on chain um and the way you do the visualization is pretty cool um, in terms of how this transaction will look uh, before you send it. Um, I don't know. I, th- I think a lot of people can learn from basically your approach. I don't know if it's for everybody. It definitely is kind of power user-y. And that's not a word, but... Um, yeah, no. Look, I I really built the wallet that I wanted to use. Um, I wasn't, you know, as many open source, maybe every open source project begins, I wasn't happy with what was out there. And uh, I just wanted to, you know, you know, in in sort of a unapologetic way, just build the wallet that um, I felt I wanted to use. Um, And that's kind of been my guide throughout the entire entire thing. So 
I completely understand and realize that, you know, you know, it's not necessarily for everyone or even the wallet you might want to use in every occasion. For example, it's not a mo mobile wallet, 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 so, you know, you might want something a little bit more automated in that case. Um, but in terms of uh, the kind of use cases that I wanted to try and support, um, the idea is really just to give the user as much information as you can, you know, to try and, and reveal as much about the Bitcoin protocol as you can, because it's my belief that if you don't understand what's going on, Bitcoin is at this current time, and maybe the layers above it will solve these issues, but at this current time, working with layer one is you, you're going to um, re reveal too much about yourself or potentially make mistakes if you don't understand what's going on. I think that ultimately, you know, if you're taking sovereignty over your own funds, you need to put a bit of effort in to understand what you're doing. Um, that's, that's honestly been my belief. I mean, Andrew, I'm like, I'm curious about your perspective here. Cause I feel like, like, can you relate to this perspective or, 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 or do you feel it's misguided? Um, I don't know. <laughs> because so like, when it comes to core, this is a project that I joined, it's not a project that I made on my own. Um, so a lot of things that I work on are because of decisions that were made by someone else. Uh, and, and so, you know, sometimes it's not the software that I want to, that I want to be making, but it's the, it's what I have to work with. I don't, I don't know. But I, I meant more from, I guess from like your earlier comments, uh, it, I'm not trying to compare Core and Sparrow. I mean, I think it's good I, I, I respect the decisions made in terms of core, in terms of trying to be as conservative as possible. Um, I mean, it's the bedrock of, of the whole network. Uh, I meant more from like your personal comments earlier in terms of how you approach coin selection, right? Cause it's, it's a, it's well, a completely I mean different viewpoint, right? It's, it's, it's the, the, like Craig's 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 perspective and his goal from the beginning have been to basically try and make power users out of non-power users. Um, while your perspective is kind of the opposite, right? Your perspective is is they they should never be going into coin control. They should not be necessarily labeling explicitly UTXOs. They should not really know exactly what's going on under the under the hood in terms of the of terms of the utxos well i mean part of this is because it's these are decisions that, that i didn't make right these, these came from uh, frankly a lot of it came from satoshi um find a surprising amount of his code still lying around um and and so so those decisions of like you know do we expose do we expose these to the users? Um, a lot of that ends up being like this. Uh, in some previous version, we did it this way. And so it doesn't change. Um, 
uh, I've had that problem with even just changing our coin selection algorithm. Uh, and and I would say part of this is also that it's core moves slowly and uh, doesn't want to, we don't want to break the current experience. You know, what, what users, if, if a user were to upgrade to the next version, is it a drastic change um, that they are not expecting? So it's hard for us to completely shift to a different like model. Right. I have a question for you, Andrew. Do you get frustrated at the, you know, building a wallet GUI and releasing the consensus code for core are, are about as diametrically opposed in terms of a release process as I could imagine? Um, do you find it's quite difficult to fit those two things into one? Um, not really, uh, because they're kind of separate. So, so core, we've gotten to a point where, where it's kind of modular. Um, the wallet kind of lives in its own space. Consensus lives in its own space. The GUI lives in its own space. Uh, so there, there isn't like conflicts between them, at least not that much. Um, and when it comes to releases, you know, core doesn't do feature-based releases. Uh, everything is time-based. You know, every six or so months we do a release and whatever got merged is in it. Whatever didn't get merged is not in it. Uh, we don't wait around for features to get in, whether that's consensus or, or wallet or otherwise. Um, so I don't really find that to be frustrating at all. So if I was to approach that in a different way, is the, the level of code review required for a consensus change is obviously huge. Do, um, does the same level of code review apply to a wallet GUI change or, or are they quite different? Uh, it's definitely less, but it's still quite a, quite a lot of review, especially anything, anything that touches people's coins, um, whether that's signing, coin selection, anything like that, even like um, storage for backwards compatibility reasons. Uh, all of this, all of it requires uh, maybe not so much on the level of, of consensus changes, which require also some conceptual review, but, but still the code review is pretty rigorous. And part of this is because um, it has a real-world effect. Uh, you can observe in the UTXO set when coin selection algorithms change, and you can see how what you know. Sometimes you can see a spike in UTXO. Sometimes you see a dip. Uh, you can see changes in the distribution of values, that kind of thing. Um, and and so it's important for even wallet changes to get lots of review. There, there's famously um, one of uh, Merch's PRs, his his first PR to core caused a spike in the UTXO set and it got reverted. <laughs> what was that change? Was it a uh, coin selection? It was coin selection. It was a simp it was ostensibly a simple change. Um, I believe it was to uh, drop unnecessary dr uh, yeah, so sometimes a coin selection algorithm would choose more inputs than it really needed. Um, and so it was 
drop unnecessary inputs uh, and reduce the change, which, you know, on the surface, that sounds fine, right? What actually happened is that it caused change to become very small, um, which dust means change. that we got dust change or very close to dust change. When fee rates spiked, they became dust. Um, and this also then caused the UTXO set to grow because less UTXOs were being cleaned up. Um, and and some people's wallets ended up being becoming filled with dust inputs that they couldn't really use. So, so yeah, That's even things like even things like coin selection have uh, not just impacts to the user, but impacts to the network. So that's that's like a dueling incentive there. Do you think do you think wallet developers should be should the priority be the user or are should you know when when someone like Craig is 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 dealing with his decisions in terms of of how coin selection happens, should his concern be um, he has to balance the concern between the chain and the network versus the user. Yeah, uh, and that's something that that in core we also struggle with. Um, it's why for our, for the coin selection changes, um, I always get asked to run simulations, and I have to go and run simulations of, you know, how how many UTXOs do we end up on the network? How many end up? Uh, how big does the wallet get? That kind of stuff. So yeah, it, it is. Um, it's a it's a very difficult balancing act. Yeah, I, I think one of the other things that is um, if that makes it really hard to get the coin selection. Just to go back to that is that the fact that you don't actually know going into the algorithm all of the inputs that you require to get to the out output. So usually, what happens is you have to go around in a loop and try and and try different um, uh, kind of. Uh, different ways of being able to solve solve things. Um, so it's it's overall just just the way Bitcoin works makes that particular part of it um, difficult, and I think in many ways sort of an unsatisfactory from a scientific point of view because you you always feel that there's a better way to construct a particular transaction, but at some point you just have to give up because um, particularly when your UTXO set is very large. It just ends up taking too long, so you end up just saying, "Oh well, you know, this is going to be enough." Um, but uh, you know, one of the reasons that I, I just went ahead and ported the branch and bound algorithm directly from Bitcoin Core is really the amount of thought that needs to go into these these things. Thought and, as Andrew says, testing uh, is very large. So you know, and I and I think you're absolutely right in that. Wallet developers do have to think about this and do have to con take into account the health of the net net network as well as their users. Um, so it's one area in which wallets um, can inf can sort of sort of influence the health of the of of the net network in the same way that Core has so many other factors that it needs to consider. But this is one that wallet developers have to consider as well. This is the second time you've mentioned Core's branch and bound uh, coin selection algorithm. Do one of you want to describe how that works? I'll leave that to Andrew. He understands yeah. it much better than me. Yes. So branch and bound is an uh, algorithm that Merch came up with for his master's thesis. Um, the idea is basically that you try every single combination of coin selection of inputs. Um, 
every single combination of inputs possible. And, uh, and the goal is to exactly match within a small window of the, to the target. So if I want one Bitcoin, this algorithm is intended to either fail or find one, some input set that is between one and like one plus dust, basically. Um, one of the one of the very important concepts in this is that uh, we are willing to um, throw away the amount that it would cost to make a change output, right? So if if a change output costs like a hundred satoshis, um, then we're willing to throw away up to a hundred satoshis in fees uh, to in order to not make a change output. Um, so because it'd be unspendable anyway yeah so it's the the idea is that either we will make a change output and we have to spend those 100 satoshis in fees or we can not make a change output but then uh if we are as long as we're we throw away less than 100 satoshis it's always cheaper than if we had made a change output does that kind of make sense yeah yes um so that's one of the very important ideas that merch came up with and so what branch and bound does is it builds a tree of like all the uh possible inputs and whether you can include an input or not and all the various combinations and whenever like if you follow one branch of that tree uh you get to a point where you're past the target value then that stops searching down that path so that's the that's the bounding of branch and bound and then the branch is just searching all the different combinations. Um, and so this is fairly efficient, I think, because of the bounding. Uh, so we don't end up, you don't end up searching all um, two to the N possible combinations. Uh, and, and this can, with a very large input set, it probably will find something that fits in that exact match window. Um, awesome. And so branch unbound, we use this to to uh, avoid. It's a good way to avoid making change, which is right. So the main priority there is the chain, not the user. Well, there's two priorities with this. Uh, it, it's it's kind of both actually. Like, it helps with the chain because it ends up being fairly consolidatory. Uh, and the other thing is it helps the user with their privacy because there's no change output. So it looks like they're spending to themselves, maybe. Right. Well, it just ends up being that there isn't... We just cut off one way that people can trace it because there's just going to not be a change output. There won't be anything that someone can follow and say, this is probably change and try to link that to the rest of the wallet. Um, so that that's that's where Branch and Bound helps with privacy. Fair enough. I mean, I, I think, I mean, a general heuristic that change surveillance company use, uses as well is that this idea that if there's no change, you're probably consolidating to yourself. Um, right. And and in that case, this would throw that off. Right. Um, well, I'm not going to listen to your advice and I'm going to keep using coin selection, but um, I, pr- <laughs> I appreciate the, I, I'm still going to use coin control, but I appreciate your perspective. Um, so, I mean, we're, we're kind of nearing the end of our time. We're over the end of our time here. Um, I am respectful of your time. 
Um, before we get to final thoughts, we do have a question from Young Lurk um, asking if Craig plans to stay up to date with um, Samurai's current Whirlpool implementation. Um, you want to address that, Craig? Yeah, sure. So my aim there is to uh, to keep on using the same client. Um, uh, I've actually um, have the some of Samurai's teams help in just making sure that the client remains the same because I've had to uh, make some packaging related um, changes to their code, but at least we are staying on the same code code base. And I think that that's important. However, the way that it has been written is in a very modular sort of way. So it allows me to use the same code base, but to insert and add certain things that um, allow me to add features that maybe the Samurai team haven't built in yet. So one of those features that we will be launching with is the ability to mix out from, from a coin join after a certain number of rounds into a multi-sig wallet. Um, so you can currently do this, although it requires the command line, you can currently mix out into a single sig wallet um, with the current Samurai stack. And with Sparrow, I will be able to, you'll you'll be able to mix out to multi-sig, which I think makes some sense for those who are looking to, you know, who who might be buying on a KYC exchange, uh, sending it through a different um, th through through a number of different mixes and then mixing out to cold store st storage. So that's, I think, one way in which um, Sparrow will be able to sort of innovate on top of the Whirlpool client, um, but. Uh, in order to kind of keep things as aligned with a coordinator as I can, I'm going to keep on using that same client and keep that client in sync with whatever the Samurai some, some, team are doing. So, right. yeah, that's the... I mean, the dream, is, the dream is to have many wallets all using the same liquidity pool. So that's, that's I mean, I'm speaking for you a little bit, but that's kind of the goal here. Um, you share a liquidity pool. Hopefully, other wallets also decide to join the same liquidity pool. Um, and I, I guess you're also you're you're also including mix spending tools that Samurai has. Um, whether that's yes. collaborative transactions like a two-person uncoordinated coin join, or if that's a, the simulated coin joins, the stone walls. Yeah, so um, I think that that's sort of almost a requirement uh, when you're coming out of post mix to at least have those those tools um, because it just it helps everyone's an onset um, to have have them, them 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 there. So for me, that was sort of a a basic requirement uh, that I wanted to have have in. And then the other one, as I just mentioned, was the ability to mix out to a different wallet to a cold storage wallet. I think given what Sparrow Wallet is trying to achieve here and the sort of primary use case as a desktop wallet. I thought that that was something which would be useful. Um, yeah, that's it's also, great. It's also just helpful. You know, I think the some Samurai team obviously have a concern with the amount of liquidity that they need to keep in the pool. So for them, they have no doubt considered the, uh, the, the ability to mix out before, but obviously also considered what kind of impact that will have on the liquidity in those, those pools. With, um, with what I'm doing, it kind of allows me to take a different tack without influencing theirs too much. Um, and see, you know, my hope is that overall it will attract more people to come and coin join and the liquidity pool will actually increase 
um, even though some people are mixing out to cold storage, which obviously decreases. So those are answers that we don't know yet. Um, but I'm hopeful that um, adding these features overall just makes the number of users more and ultimately increases the size of the pools. Awesome. Um, well, I appreciate both of your time. I think this was a great conversation. Um, I know I'll have you back on, Craig, and I, I hope that you'll join me again soon. And um, Andrew, I hope to have you on again sometime soon to uh, to just, you know, it's always great to have you. I, it's always a good conversation. Um, do you guys have any final thoughts? I guess we'll, we'll end with some final thoughts. Uh, we'll start with Andrew. Um, final thoughts. Uh, going back to the, the reproducible build thing, if you are somewhat technical and you can read instructions, try doing, try finding the instructions to do a reproducible build of software that you use and try doing it and see if you get the same results. Uh, it's, you know, it should just, it should be more than just developers that do that. It should be um, users too. The users of the software should be doing reproducible builds. So you should try doing that. I mean, just encourage people in general, right? They should be building yeah. from source. Yep. Craig? Um, I think I, I kind of want to to add to that by just saying, you know, being able to build from source is important, but it's not obviously the only attack vector. And, um, you know, there's other ones as well. You know, for instance, there's the idea that you could have a dependency that could be updated, you know, sort of upstream from what you're doing, and that could introduce malicious code in. And building from source is not going to help that. For example, um, if indeed the developer has agreed to bring that dependency in. So, you know, teams that don't have a huge amount of resources need to look at all of the different attack vectors and, you know, decide how many resources they're going to put towards each, 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 each one. Um, but I, I do think that being able to target intermediate steps in terms of your build process and have people be able to identify those and be able to build a the same you know kind of output to that point makes a lot of sense and helps kind of reach the end goal of a reproducible binary without having to try and do it in an all or not nothing sort of um, step. Uh, I mean, I know those are final thoughts, but Andrew, do you agree that an intermediate process uh, is a net benefit? Yes. In, uh, getting yeah. some reproducibility is always good. Awesome. Um, Andrew, I mean, I, I'm hoping to get uh, Carl Dong and Nick on to talk about geeks and Nick's. So, I mean, it'd be awesome if you joined us for that conversation. Sure. Um, and you've also, before we fully wrap up, uh, you've been doing twitch yourself um you want to shill your uh, yeah, your sure. twitch account um if you want to watch me uh work on this some stuff i work on for core and other bitcoin projects uh you can come watch me every every monday at 2 p.m eastern time uh on twitch.tv slash hl 101 so same name yep same same, I use the same name everywhere. So if you want to, yeah, if you want to 
come hang out and watch me complain about compilers not working um you can do that awesome and that's 1800 utc every monday um thank (laughs) thank you to both of you guys for your time thank you for this conversation it's a great conversation and thank you to the freaks who joined us um i appreciate all your support thanks guys cheers Touch the ground, touch the ground, and it feels like I can see the sands on the horizon at the time. You are not around, slowly drifting away. Wave after wave, wave after wave.
Love you, freaks. Hope you enjoyed that rip. I know it was a bit technical. Um, trying to find a balance here. Uh, if you appreciate the show, I appreciate your feedback, your support. That's what makes Dispatch special to me. That's why I do it week after week. Um, yeah, I love you all. I'll see you uh, for Rabbit Hole Recap on Thursday. Um, hopefully, I'll see you for Dispatch next Tuesday. Got to nip it in the bud, this bi-weekly meme of Dispatch. So I will make sure that we have a solid topic and guest lineup next week. Um, yeah, uh, BitcoinBinary.org is the project that NVK is working on to catalog all these reproducible builds. Um, so pay attention to that. Um, I imagine it'll be updated. Uh, we'll see. And uh, I love you all. Stay humble and stack.